Go Loud presents Magnified by Matt Cooper. Hello and welcome to the first summer holiday edition of Magnified. When I launched this series was because I wanted the opportunity to chat with guests in greater detail than my radio show, The Last Word, on Today FM usually allows. Now I record most of the interviews with my guests at home, sitting together at my kitchen table, which means that each episode features an in-depth and very personal conversation. I'd like to extend that personal connection to you, my audience which is why I've created a community on LinkedIn for listeners to join. You'll be able to share, comment, ask questions and post and get involved with the conversations my guests and I are having. So while I'm away, we're spotlighting a different magnified guest each day on the page. In this episode, you'll hear excerpts from some of the guests we featured this week. Donald Slattery, Anya Kerr, Neil Francis and Barry Lund. not an empathetic person that allows you i suppose in business circumstances to be to be ruthless um so it's not a natural you know natural ruthlessness but i i do have a low empathy score and the next question is why do you have a low empathy score i suppose is what you're thinking right and so that that goes back you know this is not a story that i've really shared before but to 1978 right Uh, i was 11 uh, and my brother was nine and our father died and uh, he died of lung cancer, ultimately. He was one of, you know, he smoked 60, 70, 80 cigarettes a day. And he died of lung cancer. And I remember that day, 25th of August, 1978, the day of his funeral, um, standing in the garden after the funeral, you know, everyone's back at the house having the tea and the sandwiches, uh, basically saying to myself, nobody is ever, ever going to hurt me again. And I, I literally went from black to white or white to black at, on that day and I've, I've I've wrestled with that you know over, over the years around that empathy piece and uh, I, I just think that's unfortunately 40 years of a low empathy score have compounded into into that situation today so it's not ruthlessness but it's a low empathy Did that cause your drive do you think does there a trauma at that young age did that provide the ambition and drive for you Yeah I, I think so I think that's unquestionable um, and you know there's there's been a lot of research, actually, academic research about uh, early parental loss uh, in, in people and the consequential drive that comes from that. And, uh, you know, there was a piece of research done by Harvard 20 or so years ago looking at um, the CEOs of the S&P 500, so the 500 biggest companies in the United States, almost by definition in the world. A very significant percentage had lost parents early in their lives, early being teens or early 20s. And so unquestionably for, for me and, and, and my brother, uh, who was two years younger, um, you know, my father died. The reality of the situation was we had the nice house in Ennis, but we literally hadn't a penny, couldn't afford to turn on the heat. Um, and so it, it looked like the swan in the lake, you know, it looked lovely above the water, but below the water it, was, it wasn't great to say the very least. And so therefore, I had to go out and get a job. So I was working, you know, summer jobs, Saturday jobs from the age of 13 or 14 and, you know, handing up the few quid to, to mom at the end of every, every week. And so that work ethic, um, out of necessity rather than by desire, 
um, was was in, innate in me from from that early age, and and, and my and my brother was the same. He was a super swimmer, so he got he he became a lifeguard like from the age of fifteen. So he got that really you know the cool summer job with the the broad shoulders and the lifeguard. And I was down in the Queen's Hotel in Ennis uh, picking up glasses in the bar. So, but that was probably good for you as well, was it? Actually, for uh, for interacting with people. Yeah, look, you know, I think it's uh, like you think of the greatest conversations in the world that happen. Uh, they happen between the bar person and the person at the other side of the bar because you've got the full bell curve of life that's going on. You have somebody who's in the depths of depression, profound alcoholism, they're in there every day. And then you have the other end of the spectrum that somebody's in there to celebrate because something wonderful has happened in life. You know, the glass of champagne, not that there was much champagne in Ennis in the <laughs> 80s. Um, and so you adapt it, right? And you could read quite quickly what that person needed or indeed didn't need. And a great skill of a bar person, I think, you know, is when to shut up. And in life, you know, having two ears and one mouth is a good thing. You know, do a little bit more active listening. I'm not great at that either, but um, as in it's more two mouths, one ear. But anyway, so yeah, I think, I think you know, that, that working early in life, trying to figure out what's what and, you know, earning a crust um, is clearly very important important in setting the sort of you know the, the guiding principles of a of a business career tell us about tony ryan and your interaction with him yes yeah, tony ryan um tony ryan i i started i'd say there was th- three stages of our relationship right i met uh, tony ryan dr tony ryan as he was then in uh, around may june 1989 so i'd, I'd just graduated from ucg nui galway as it is now i'd spent a brief period at Chorus Troctola, which was the precursor to Enterprise Ireland, the Irish Trade Board. They had a graduate programme at the time. And I got a job at GPA. I kind of blagged my way in. And I, I just didn't fit the profile at the time. But right? GPA was an enormous thing to get into at the time. It was the big beast of the aviation leasing business. It was moving towards a planned stock market flotation within a couple of years. It's, it, it was, yeah. And, you know, from growing up in Ennis, so just to kind of make the, the unfamiliar familiar to people who may not know about GPA or, or, or where it was. But, you know, at that time, late 80s, Ireland, not a very dynamic, exciting place. Certainly, you know, the year I graduated from college, I think 90% of the kids emigrated, probably the same in your class. Yeah. So this, this GPA, there were two or three companies in Ireland at the time who were just world class. GPA was one of them, based in Shannon, 150 people, and they were all gazillionaires. And they flew around the world and they had this amazing lifestyle. And of course, I loved airplanes. I had this passion for airplanes and I had this emotional link with Shannon. And I just decided this is where I had to work. I wanted to work here. And this Tony Ryan dude, wow, he looks and feels like somebody really interesting. And I blagged my, literally blagged my way in. First job was six o'clock in the morning in the, in the mailbox or the post box. Or my job was to pick up the faxes, photocopy them and make sure the executives had them. So my first phase of knowing Tony was 89 uh, to 93, 94 actually. Um, prior to 1992, we were going to be the largest flotation ever in the world. We were kings of the hill. Uh, we were, whatever we said was magic. We were dominating this nascent industry of global aircraft leasing. You couldn't make it up. A 
And misinformation sometimes can be, we've seen it in Ukraine where somebody saw something on a social media platform, but it turned out it was actually from Syria or was from Afghanistan. Disinformation, though, is where it is knowingly being spread by someone as part of a playbook, as part of conspiracy theory, as part of propaganda to spew confusion and disorder. And you see that whether somebody decides to take, and we've seen it with Ukraine, um, images from a documentary, images from a trailer, uh, repurposing uh, images at a past uh, conflict, repurposing that for their own purposes, sometimes of propaganda, sometimes it's just their own sense of wanting to be part of a moment. So this is their way to feel empowered and belonging to, to something. Sometimes it is financial gain, but disinformation is where it has been knowingly spread to cause confusion and often can lead to real world harm, as we have seen, whether it's, you know, vaccine adoption or we see now on a war front between, you know, Russia public sentiment and Ukrainian people and how disinformation has been used in that space to try and kind of change a public appetite for war, for invasion and, and how it's sown from there. What about the responsibility of platforms? Obviously, they're now hiring Kinzen to do work on their behalf. But how seriously then do they actually take their responsibility to act upon the information that you provide to them? Because if you think back, and let's take Facebook as an example, and Frances Hogan, the whistleblower, and what she revealed, suggested almost a cynicism that, well, whatever we know is going onto the platform, uh, even if we know that it's wrong and we know that it is harmful, it is only moderated to a limited degree because the priority is getting eyeballs and getting advertising profits on the back of that. And I do think the platforms find themselves in yet another precedented moment, yet a moment where, you know, founders of Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, whoever they are, their mission, I think, was to do good. I do believe that they wanted to make the world more connected, to ensure that people felt more informed about their communities and have that sense of connection. What they didn't allow for enough was that there are going to be a minority of people would use it and abuse it. And therefore, they're still catching up on those unintended consequences of their platforms. And so they keep having to recreate playbooks. They're creating one now for for this wartime moment. They're having to constantly evolve. They're in this ad hoc mode. You talk to people inside platforms, they'll often say it feels like a game of whack-a-mole. They're constantly just reacting to fires burning. doesn't matter if it's the Philippines, Myanmar, uh, elections in the United States. States, this moment in Ukraine, it's constantly trying to react to a moment as opposed to proactively trying to get ahead of what is the world going to look like in 10 years time and work back from there? Like, What is the regulation? What are the standards? How are we going to hold ourselves accountable? And I think they've gotten into such reactive mode that often there isn't enough about that bigger holistic responsibility and what the world is going to look like in 10 years time. But I do think platforms at least are trying to think about a holistic set of solutions. There is a recognition they need um, to think about their algorithms and their recommenders and how those are wired. And I do think there's a dawning realisation that, you know, this endless scrolling, this constantly setting people into platforms where it's about time spent, that you're there to consume adverts. And it's about these dopamine hits interspersed with cute babies and funny cats and then showing you these awful moments from Ukraine. And we're all there in this doom scroll 
constantly there looking for more information when instead there is this increasing movement around time well spent. Well, what would it be like to actually go into these platforms and rather than stay there all day constantly checking back, that you go in and read five articles today, you know, that maybe do match your interests, your hobbies, your profession, your location, and that that feels enough to feel empowered and informed about the world around you. And yes, consume advertising. Of course, we want to sustain quality, trustworthy journalism, but there is a different way of doing it. And that advertising model for platforms is now broken. So we have to look at that. But then you have to go right back to our education systems. And I ultimately accept My daughter, she is only four, is going to grow up in a world of constant now misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, harmful speech. It's only going to get worse. And I can hope that I am going to play my part to make... Uh, to ensure that the platforms, the news feeds that she consumes is full of quality, trustworthy content and that people like me are going to try to work to mitigate the bad stuff. But we have to teach people like my daughter critical thinking skills. We have to start thinking about what does news literacy look like in our in our schools. They say in the United States states that at 12, that is when you try to inoculate kids. That is when you teach them almost the skills of journalism, the who, what, where, when, how, why, that they're constantly learning to look at something and go, well, does that actually make sense, right? What does it look like for me to to debunk this, to go and find a quality source, to ask hard questions of this and be the wisdom in the crowd. And I don't think we've thought enough about that here in this country yet. There's definitely some good initiatives, but what is it going to look like to actually teach kids critical thinking skills in our primary schools to ultimately inoculate them? We're going to have to think to our earlier point, we are coming through a pandemic. We're also coming through an infodemic. We have a vaccine now to inoculate kids over what, six years of age? How are we going to inoculate them against misinformation and disinformation? Do you think, is Russia to blame for an awful lot of the things that have gone wrong over the last decade on our news feeds, that it has been responsible for deliberately manipulating information that's appeared on our major platforms, like Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, that we have been subject to an information war long before the invasion of Ukraine. Also, I suppose you could say, after all the things Russia did in Crimea and Syria as well. They've certainly played a role. Uh, I think it'll take, even with Ukraine right now, it'll take another six to nine months for us to really understand the entirety of that information effort when you look at, so we talk about OSINT now, where you have these open source intelligence journalists, verification specialists, who have really been specialists in this area since 2014. When we think of that Malaysia aircraft going down, you have companies like Bellingcat. They have just stayed in that area since 2014, trying to understand everything from satellite imagery to the corner of buildings that in this moment they can verify you know, we, we look at Boucher today and bodies on the street and you have New York Times, you have Bellingcat. So there has been a state of readiness. Sorry, that's mm. I want to ask you about that because my first thought on seeing all that was, is this true? And maybe that's because I've become so sceptical about everything that I see on the internet that I almost need things to be actually proven to me. Now, there's been some very convincing work done by the New York Times, for example, showing satellite imagery of the fact that the bodies were there strewn on the streets as the Russian ta- uh, army left. 
So this idea that the Russians are trying to put out that this is propaganda, this is some sort of Ukrainian or even Western response to set up the Russians has been disproven. But you almost have to work, don't you, and rely on many people to do the work for you to actually show what is the truth and what is not the propaganda. Yeah, so we're in this perfect storm that is 10 years in creation, to your point. But we also have this state of readiness where journalists can put up their hands today and go, we have verifiable proof that what we are seeing in Boucher is real. And that is because of satellite imagery that they've been able to get access to. But it's also journalists on the ground who have been there, who have been able to say that street corner matches that photograph. They can give the geolocations and say, yeah, geo-coordinates, that matches with what we're seeing here in the satellite image. So you still need journalists and photographers on the ground. Then you have eyewitnesses. You go through TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and and all of these platforms. And then you can match eyewitness testimonial to what journalists are able to vouch for to then satellite imagery. And you start to put all of these things together and it's turning a piece of content. So it starts with a satellite imagery of are those bodies on the streets of Boucher today? And you're turning that piece of content into journalism where you can with a certain level of certainty if you are the New York Times today and you are Malachi Brown, nephew of Vincent Brown, and go, yeah, we are confident we can call BS here on Russia propaganda. But it takes the blend. And I think that's a critical point in all of this. There are verification tools, there's software that we can use today, you know, reverse image searching. We can do digital footprint analysis. We need tooling for sure. We need sophisticated satellite imagery, but it comes back to good old school journalism at the end of the day when it comes back to these critical questions. It was a mistake, wasn't it? Uh, How would we say it? An inadvertent infringement into... I, I, I disparaged the player. I would have thought maybe a yellow card offence if yeah, you were going to use absolutely. 10 yeah. minutes in the sin bin. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. not necessarily suddenly you're fired. So, yeah, to explain the way I was thinking was that, you know, and everybody, everybody, you know, come up to me and come up to the street or wherever or, you know, in places business or people I see in business. And they sort of, and they forget the name of the guy that I was making the comparison with. But basically... You know, it, I, I compared, and this was the disparagement that I compared Marcus Smith to Gavin Henson. And Gavin Henson, again, another talented player. I never played with him, but talked to players who played with him, and a unique individual, and would have spent hours in the bath, shaving his legs, putting on moisturizer, putting on, you know, fake tan, getting his hair done, making sure his face was properly moisturized, and that's anathema to an awful lot of rugby players. Like, and if he wants to do it, that that's fine. And it's a generational thing. No, I don't think it is. I think it's an individual. Say, I don't. I don't think any of the players get involved in, in in that sort of stuff. So he was brought on Alliance tour in two thousand and five, and in the second test against New Zealand, it was a media selection. He was picked at at. at it was a marketing ploy. Yeah, it was. And he should never have been... And they got absolutely pummeled in the second test. And he was a disaster. 
Uh, and then there were special photographs organised before the third test when he was being dropped, yeah. you might remember. <laughs> yes. So he, he wasn't good enough, shouldn't have been picked, and he wasn't a particularly well-liked within the, in that squad. But, I mean, it was, it was not a good tour from every perspective. And Marcus Smith was picked, uh, and I'd watched him play a couple of times for Harlequins, and Harlequins had done well that year but he should never as a player have been brought on that Lions tour ahead of Johnny Sexton no no and again the media were clamouring for you know look and you can never translate premiership you know like I mean you look at it now you know the premiership you know and where are they there you know there's no premiership clubs and you know in the last in, in, the, in the business it was one in the quarterfinals of the Champions yeah. Cup that's and, it and they got wiped so you can never translate premiership form to certainly playing in a, a third test against the Springboks at home. And they were looking to pick him. And I just said, you, you can't pick this guy. He's a very talented player and he will get better. But you just couldn't put him in there. And basically what I was saying was, look, this could be another Gavin Henson. You pick him and he, the, the kid could fold and you'd be certain that the... The Springboks would target him. He's a small guy. He has great skill, great ability, but it might overwhelm him. And that was the, the basic point of, of what I was trying to say. Did I say it correctly? No, I didn't. Did I make a mistake? Probably. Did I disparage him? I did, but not in the way that a number of people thought that I disparaged him. And most of my constituency, the rugby following percentage of this of this country knew exactly what I was trying to say and a tiny percentage of nameless faceless people on Twitter interpreted it another way and and unfortunately that's and, and it, it kind of grew legs and I was uh, I was cancelled and I was uh, like I say I'm, I'm, I'm thick skinned I was disappointed that the that the uh, the Indo didn't stick to the guns. I apologised, and we talked about it uh, in a number of ways. Just said, I like you said, it's a yellow card offence. And uh, look, lads, this is, you know, it's the end of the season. There's one match to go. Suspend the column for a couple of months, and you slap slap on the hand, and we're back in September, October. And anyway, they just they came back to me. Uh, on lunchtime on Friday and just said right your um, your contract's up in September and we're not going to renew it okay fair enough but a number of things sort of came about one was that the following week they approached me and said we want you back and then the Sunday Times were in and they said we want you and then a number of left field oddball stuff a couple I won't say who it was one wealthy individual just sort of said okay I'm going to finance you we don't need we don't need advertising or whatever else there and we're going to do frano.com just write a piece or two pieces a week and we'll pay you and one or two other oddball sort of things there so which obviously you didn't go for no well I knew you know, I, I said I knew the Sunday Times were very keen to have me, and I knew that the Indo were 
keen to have me back. So I, I just think it's, you know, and, I, and if you want to take it a stage further, like I, I think where we are with this particular culture, is there, have we reached a, a kind of a tipping point at, the, at this stage? So McCarthyism lasted for about four or five years. And I think the vast majority of people in this country have exhausted their patience with what this culture is, is kind of doing. So high 90s, I, I would suspect, of people that would sort of say, look, the world has gone crazy. It has gone crazy. So far cleverer people than me have, have been able to talk about it and write about it, you know, how it's come about, where it's come from, where it's going to. But how did you feel in the aftermath of it all? And knowing that you were the centre, I mean, it, it was more the British media that made an issue of it to an extent than the Irish media until such stage as you were cancelled by the Independent. And lots of people in rugby were coming out and talking about it. So what is it like to go through that experience of knowing that you have been cancelled? <laughs> See, I'm not on Twitter. I have no social media. So I, I don't know, and I don't know and I don't care what they were saying about me. One or two people overstepped the mark and we'll see. I'm not, I'm not litigious, but it's very hard to prove that you're a racist, particularly when you're not a racist. And some of those people that made those allegations and those comments are on thin ice. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not litigious. Um, I, you know, I, I miss the storm because I'm not on, I'm not on Twitter. And Friday night, I went out for dinner with friends. Saturday night, I went out for dinner with friends. Sunday, I went down to see my mother. Monday, it was all over. And then the, the whole process of sort of saying, okay, look, we want him or we want him back began pretty much straight away. And I said, look, do you know what? And I, I like, in terms of, of income, it's only a small percentage of, of, of what I do. But because I enjoy writing, you know, would I, would I write again? So I took, I took time out from, say, September to Christmas. And then I decided, okay, I enjoy writing. I'm pretty good at it. And I have a, a pretty strong following. And everybody's sort of saying, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And so it, it, it didn't bother me that much. But for people who don't get the opportunity to come back, you know, so the people, people's interpretations of what you say, and then you lose your job as, as a result of it. So I prepared something here. <laughs> a written statement? Not a, no, not a written statement. No, 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 no. So something, something it's, it's where it goes from here. And like, like I was sort of saying, you, 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 you can't get into a, a, a situation where, you know, you just keep on commenting about cancel culture, cancel culture, and, and sort of where it's going. So here is Article 40, Paragraph 6 of Bunrock-Naharan. Just read it quickly. The state guarantees liberty for the exercise of the following rights subject to public order and morality. 
the right of citizens to express freely their convictions and opinions, the education of public opinion being, however, a matter of such grave import to the common good, the state shall endeavour to ensure that organs of public opinion, such as the radio, the press, the cinema, while preserving their rightful liberty of expression, including criticism of government policy, shall not be used to undermine public order or morality of the authority of the state. So it's a fundamental right enshrined in the Constitution. And what cancel culture here and, in the, and the same, the Americans have the same, the Brits have the same, all around Western Europe there, you have a fundamental right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And cancel culture flies directly in that right. So how do we stop? How do we let this Take us back how you got into all this, because you mentioned about coding early on, but your original background wasn't in engineering or computer science, was it? I mean, tell us about where you went to college. Yeah, and uh, actually, uh, it's it's funny, my original background wasn't in engineering, absolutely not, in terms of where I went to college. But I would say, if you ask my mother, she would have said, yeah, he was making and breaking things since he was born, right? So I was a Lego kid. I was an electronics kid. I was always making and breaking things. I grew up next door uh, to the head of electronic engineering in NIT, and he had a garage full of bits and bobs. Um, and I just love going in there. Like he was, they had a, a computer before I'd ever, you know, even contemplated what one would look like. And uh, funnily enough, his his son is is a is a senior engineer in um, Google for for quite some time and actually now works on their autonomous vehicle program, which is quite funny. And uh, I must remind him because the two of us built a go-kart when we were younger together. So so it'd be great to, to maybe build an autonomous vehicle together now. Uh, but that, So I was always into that kind of stuff, but I struggled in school and so... Yeah, could you talk to me a little bit about dyslexia? Because you're not the first person I've spoken to on this series who has thrived in business while actually dealing with dyslexia, particularly in their schooling years. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I didn't struggle with dyslexia in my school years because I was never diagnosed, right? So it was much later that I was diagnosed. So I, I struggled with laziness, apparently, according to my teachers, right? And, and that, that, that's actually one of the most frustrating parts of dyslexia, that it's often misdiagnosed. Not, not so much these days, but still. I have a nephew who was misdiagnosed with laziness as well, and I knew he wasn't, right? And I knew what he was going through as well, because... The problem with dyslexia is you you can you, you do aptitude tests and you do things like that. You you score really highly a lot of the time, right? Um, so then people say you see massive potential, and also when they communicate with you on a on a day to day level, teachers especially, they see a, a level of intelligence and an, an ability to work things out, and when that doesn't translate into grades. There was kind of only one diagnosis in the 80s and 90s in Ireland of, like, he's lazy. And that was the real... And outside of, like, I was never really a teacher pleaser. Um, I didn't really... I wasn't, you know, I had an issue with authority on all levels, right? So I don't want to make out, like, that, it, you know, I, I was trying and they weren't coming with me, right? But actually, my biggest struggle was with myself because I couldn't understand. I knew my capability... And I couldn't translate it into performance. And that really, really, I really struggled with yeah, that. Did that make you unhappy? Very, very unhappy. So, I, like, I, I dropped out of school at 15. But, like, I, I, you know, I 
and we haven't talked about that before but like uh, my mother thankfully stepped in at that time as well and um I started going to psychiatrist and uh started dealing with things in that way so yeah I was on I was on Prozac when I was 15 and it's all related to the dyslexia that struggle with my performance versus my capability when did you get the diagnosis in actually so yeah then so I ended up going to art college uh eventually and so um, this is that you, you dropped out of school a couple of times didn't you and yeah, kind of went yeah. back to do your leaving start eventually yeah exactly yeah i dropped out in fifth year and then i i dropped out again in um in sixth year i went back and then i dropped out again like just just couldn't make it work um and i wanted to make it work and i but i always i was working on the side as well so it was you know i had a job um so you know I wasn't lazy just a reminder I wasn't lazy in case any of my old teachers were lazy. <laughs> um but yeah so I, I, I eventually bizarrely enough I ended up sitting my leaving in a completely different school uh, in t- two schools so I went to there's country local country school rather than I had been in the city school I went to this local country school hospital and they had a tech and they had the the de La Salle I think it was at the time and I asked them could I sit to leave in there? Because the subjects I wanted to do, one of the schools didn't do all of them, you know, that kind of way. So I wanted to do engineering, I wanted to do art. Um, but then the, the other subjects, and I wanted to do honours maths, and I wanted to, and they didn't do that in the tech. So I kind of, but anyway, they agreed, and I said, I, I don't do classes very well, and I don't do it. And, and they let me, they let me do my leave in there, um, and I didn't have to go to class. That was progressive um, thinking on their part. Yeah, it was. For the time. And yeah, again, there's an awful lot of things you look back on and you go, wow, that happened. But at the time, it seemed even for me to go in and say that to them, to me, it seemed perfectly reasonable, uh, which is why I'm always worried about myself, right? Because when I look back, there's so many unreasonable things that I've done and asked for that I kind of go, what's the unreasonable thing I'm looking yeah, for right now? Yeah, but presumably that has stood to you in business since. I mean, a degree of self-confidence to go and ask and to take been knocked back and to come back again and do it again. Yeah, yeah, I think that 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 that's definitely there. But I think as well, I'm not so sure it's confidence. It's it's another dyslexic thing, actually. So, and by the way, this is so my son is dyslexic, right? And he's he's just turned thirteen now, and he was diagnosed when he was about seven. But like he sees dyslexia as a superpower. Like he was reared completely different on this, like because basically once you diagnose it early we've been able to to address all the issues of dyslexia right around the reading and writing and and by the way those things aren't that big a problem but even how you take in information so with little tweaks in schooling and literally giving his teachers every year a manual right that says this is how his brain works and this is how you you work with it and it's not hard it's it's literally like making sure he understood the question it's giving him a little extra time on on something so those little tweaks allow you to then fix the issues, right? But then there's a huge number of advantages to dyslexia. And probably the biggest one is how you see the world. You do see the world a little bit differently. I call it the, the helicopter view, right? So you, and that can be a frustration as well. So you tend to see results and then you work back and try and work through to that. But you, you tend to see the outcome of things very quickly that's how i would describe it so like what we're building right now in provisio like back in 2018 19 when i started on the napkin design and what we were going to build like stuff we cracked just now like super confident that 
back then I was seeing that. And then what you end up doing is trying to bring along people on that path with you. So I think that that's how I would how I would look at the the whole dyslexic advantage is that being able to see the end result. So to be honest with the guys in going to those principles and asking for that, that just seemed like a step to the place I needed to get to. I, I saw the outcome, which was me doing these exams and getting those results and, and getting So, so when did you get the diagnosis? What age were you? I uh, would have been, what, two, about 22 or 3. And when you got that diagnosis, what was that like? Was there a sort of a eureka moment? No, and, and, and I suppose even on the diagnosis thing, I think, like, there, there can be a little bit of a... You know, even again, I'm very conscious watching my own son as he develops, right? Because it can be a bit of like, oh, you're dyslexic. So that's now how you are. Even with the diagnosis, like it was, it was a, one of my lecturers in college that after I submitted something went, um, have you ever been assessed for dyslexia? And I said, well, you're not the first to mention it. Uh, and he said, well, so he was kind of a... He, he, Sorry, why did you say that? Was it the way it was written? Or yeah. the sort of the... Is it the structure of how things were written or the spelling or what was it? It was a little bit of everything. Um, and especially if it was a written submission. And, you know, a lot of submissions in, in college and that would be typed. Uh, but this was, this was critical and contextual studies. So you had to react to what you were seeing. So I was in the art gallery reacting to the paintings that I was and interpreting and, and doing all that. And so he, he looked at that and... and he was also a qualified um, assessor for, for dyslexia. So, and then, so we, we did some testing there and then type thing. And uh, he said, yeah, look, you know, there's a few things you could change and, and make your life an awful lot easier. Um, and that was it. But and Did you and did it? Yes and yes. And, but to be fair, people, at, especially our college unlocked that whole side of my brain as well. And, and all the stuff that almost I was, taught to suppress in school our college encourages all of that what sort right? of things like the first thing you do is you you brain dump all the wrong answers first in our college like so our college is all about getting it all out of you there's no right and wrong answer right and then it teaches you to kind of self-assess those things and and if, firstly you put them up in front of your classmates and they help you with assessing what your assumptions and all that and you you kind of break it down and you you restructure it and learn how to do that that's a very different way of learning to school there's no rote learning uh it's it's all about and there's no right or wrong answers so in our college like even in the in the exam there's an awful lot of interpretation like like you know of you know what what you know, what did I get from a painting versus what did Matt Cooper get from a painting? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but there has to be a logic and there has to be a flow. So that suited my way of thinking and my way of, of working. And fair play to your mother for persuading you to do that rather than going the engineering route that you'd wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and again, there's a context to that as in like she'd gone through, the poor woman, right? Going through years of me dropping out of school, like struggling with depression, you know, all all of that stuff. Like, like you know, she wasn't taught that. She wasn't, you know, now she's very, very clever woman. So really, you know, good to see things and understand things and know. And to be fair, cut me a break in that. Like an awful lot of parents I know, you know, teachers kept saying this guy is a bit of a bum. Um, uh, you know, they would 
take that to heart. To be fair, she cut me some slack on that front. Now, she thought I was a bit of a bum as well. Uh, but, you know, she, she kind of went halfway with me. So that's it for this week. Many thanks to our featured guests. If you missed them at the time, the full episodes are all available now in the GoLoud app or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And make sure to join us on LinkedIn to get our daily updates next week too. Just search Magnified with Matt Cooper in LinkedIn and join the conversation. <laughs>